anything worth discovering must be put to the test. We must be able to find evidence, and once we weigh all of it, we either know it to be true and accept it, or we dismiss it. That's at least honest. The problem is that many of us are unwilling to make up our minds about most things before we test them. I guess it's just, it's just easier. And we've come too far for that right now. So let's look at what the facts have to say. We were on break uh, for Thanksgiving, and we hope that all of you and your families enjoyed the uh, holiday, the good eating, the good fun, and most of all, just the togetherness with your loved ones. And so as we continue, while many would dismiss the Bible as a reliable source of history because of its religious nature, the accounts that are found in the Bible have been constantly disparaged and attacked by academics and scholars in their respective fields because of this. But is the Bible a quote-unquote religious book? Remember, religion is a man-made thing. It's a type of science that we've created in order to explain the Bible. But is the Bible a religious book or just a book? A book of honest stories of broken people who did amazing things. Some of these stories do sound like tall tales of the unbelievable. And one of the main reasons that science and agnostics or atheists are so critical of the Bible is because of its supernatural claims that the stories make themselves. And in the last episode, we took the time to observe and review over some of the more important facets and facts of at least the five dominant religions that have existed, impacted the world, and that today are still relevant. They're still active. And we noted that after looking at the religions and after looking at the founders of each of these religions, or at least the main figure that we look at, Jesus became one of the most fascinating of all of these to look at because of the claims he makes. Many upon many have taken this question on throughout history. It's nothing new. Skeptics and scholars, um, presidents, lawyers, journalists, historians, and scientists, they've all taken on the question of Jesus. Not just in terms of his supernatural claims, but even have questioned that he actually existed. One of the more convincing of these cases is Dr. Simon Greenleaf. Now, most 
may not even know who who he is. Let's put a let's put it all into context and remember that you need to do your own homework. You need to go out there. Don't just take my word for it and search. That's part of this search. Listening, yes, that that's part of it, but then take what you've listened to and go out there and continue the search. So, Dr. Simon Greenleaf, he was a Harvard law professor in the 19th century, and he was one of the great legal scholars of his time. And not just of his time, but his writings have influenced law and legal procedure even in our time. In fact, his three-volume treatise on the law of evidence has been hailed as one of the single greatest authorities on legal procedure and has been used and is continued to be used by the U.S. judicial system. His argument was that, as any honest inquirer would do in his own life or with his own professional work as a lawyer, to apply the common rules of evidence used in a court of law to prove whether the account of Jesus was true or not, he set out on this search himself. And he concluded, after an extensive review of the historical evidence, that the evidence for Jesus, for his actual existence, was overwhelming. And he's not the only one. There are various people in our time who have also decided, I'm going to take on this search, and they have found the exact same thing that Greenleaf found, that the evidence for Jesus, his existence, who he was, is overwhelming. Now, in his in, in Greenleaf's written investigation of the four gospel books of the New Testament— and, and uh, the uh, title of the book is called An Examination of the Testimony of the Four Evangelists. He makes this statement, quote, It is essential to the discovery of truth that we bring to the investigation a mind, uh, uh, sorry, a mind freed as far as possible from existing prejudice and open to conviction to follow the truth wherever it may lead us. Let me repeat that. So again, this comes from Greenleaf's book, An Examination of the Testimony of the Four Evangelists. Again, the statement he makes is, It is essential to the discovery of truth that we bring to the investigation a mind freed as far as possible from existing prejudice and open to conviction to follow the truth wherever it may lead us. And here... We're doing just that. We've been doing that. Many of the scholars who are critical of the historicity of Jesus, let alone the New Testament, and the claims that it makes, either dismiss Jesus altogether because of the supernatural claims, but also point to the actual authenticity and veracity of the actual written sources, the first four books of the New Testament, which tell us the story of Jesus. The question is, can these four books be trusted? Before looking at these four books, though, one cannot ignore the various sources that exist outside of the Bible to corroborate that the story and person of Jesus are true. And this is key, because if one takes on just the four Gospels and says, this is enough for me, for the evidence of Jesus. That's fine. But because this 
has become a great point of contention for many, that the four Gospels can be true, then we must ask, okay, well, are there any other sources outside of the Bible, outside of these four Gospels, that can corroborate, that can say that Jesus actually existed and that everything he said was true and how he lived was true? So let's look at these things. They do exist, these outside sources. So this is where you've got to pay close attention and write these things down and look them up. Besides the historian Josephus, which is an obvious source and most people know, there are also these sources. Number one, Suetonius. He was an official Roman historian in the year AD 125. He writes about the Christian sect originating from the instigation of one Crestus. Then let's take uh, a second source, Tacitus, which is probably uh, one of the more well-known historians of Rome, and he refers directly to the trial of Christus under Pontius Pilate, who was procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. Tacitus, as a governor and historian, would have had access to the government archives of Rome. Then let's take a third source, Plinius the Younger. He is a governor of Rome, and in his writings speaks about the Christian persecution and refers to their leader as Jesus Christ. And there's a fourth outside source, Lucian of Samosata. And he refers to Jesus as, quote, the man who introduced this new cult into the world. And it comes from his book called Passing Peregrinus, or Passing Pilgrim. Now, these are all considered non-Christian sources, non-religious sources. And all of them living within less than a hundred years of the crucifixion of Jesus. Lucian being the farthest away from the event at about a hundred years after Christ. Now, the way in which they write about Jesus is how a historian today would write about, let's say, George Washington. And what I mean by that is that there's no question that Washington existed. We write and refer to him as a given, that he is a real person of history. The way in which these historians write about Jesus makes his existence a given, that he lived, that he had a trial, was sentenced to death, and as a result, has followers who revere and worship him and whom the government of that day persecuted. It was a real threat to the status quo of that time, to the Roman Empire. These historians speak of this movement of Christians well over a century after the life and death of Jesus. Obviously, the movement has only grown and multiplied since then, as is evidenced not only through history, but is today one of the largest religions globally. But are sheer numbers alone evidence enough to qualify a movement or a message or this person of Jesus as true? Is a majority consensus enough to qualify the message as true? And why have so many died for it 
over the years. And today, Christians are one of the most persecuted groups in the world. And many still are giving their lives for what they believe. And why have so many feared the message, feared Christianity, feared Jesus? And still, this man called Jesus continues to make an impact in our time and in our culture. So much so that even atheists spend a lot of time and energy on this man. In essence, giving Jesus and Christianity a lot, and I mean a lot, of free publicity. And publicity is publicity, negative or positive. And still, the person of Jesus is so relevant that despite so many attempts to kill off his followers, to ridicule the movement and discredit the message, it still persists and continues to impact the world over. So the question is, is there something to it? Philip Schaff, a historian and scholar, makes this statement about Jesus. This Jesus of Nazareth, he says, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Muhammad, and Napoleon. Without science and learning, he shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of schools, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since, and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet. Without writing a single line, he set more pens in motion and furnished themes more uh, themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes works of art and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. That's Philip Schaff. Critics can laugh all they want. They can disparage all they want. But in so doing, all they do is continue to add to the litany of words that continue to give this man Jesus more airtime. And for a man who has been, by the estimation of some, dead and gone for over 2,000 years, he sure continues to dominate and influence into the 21st century and shows no signs of losing any headway in how many continue to proclaim their belief in and give their lives to him. And that's where many are not willing to go. One thing is acknowledging that his ideology and teachings are something to aspire to and practice in one's life. It's a whole other thing to devote one's life to Jesus as this Savior that he claimed to be, and somehow 
surrender oneself to him, and thereby acknowledging that there is a system of accountability, a universal judge to which we must answer to, and that there's something to gain and something to lose. But that's a pretty powerful statement by Schaff. And it's true. It can't be denied. And he did it all without social media. He did it all without radio and TV, without being some personality, although he did draw a lot of attention to himself. See, and this is where I ask, okay, here's a man who supposedly claims he is God, okay? Given that that's what he claims, let's for a moment and for argument's sake take that in and really understand the implications of that. If he is who he says he is, why on earth would he leave his own plane of existence, which is timeless, eternal, um, a reality without pain or death? With the ability, by the way, to create, since he claims he is God, the Son of God, and if you look further into the New Testament, basically he says that he's the creator. He's the one who created all life. So he leaves this, this plane of existence where there's no barriers and no limitations with all of the riches of the universe in his hand and the power to do as he pleases, why risk all of that? Why abdicate all of that to become a weak and limited being of flesh and bone so he can spend time with people who really, if you look at the whole story, who really didn't want anything to do with him anyway? And even after he heals the sick, feeds the hungry, helps the poor, and talks about love in ways that today we are hungering for in our own society, he still tried as a criminal, punished as one, and executed as one. And all the while claiming that this death, by the way, is what he came for and goes willingly to this death, quite violent death, by the way, without complaint or appeal so that he can accomplish what he calls the saving of the human race, a race that murders each other, that conquers one another, enslaves and oppresses one another, steals and takes from each other, and whose legacy of genocide, infanticide, war, chaos, destruction, and death, this is what this is what Jesus himself defines as love? And isn't all of this, and we've established this before, isn't this what our world today is crying out for? Love, for the violence, for this political rivalry and division and anger to stop. And let's for a moment go back to our other founders or leaders of these other religions, taking into account that Jesus is a Jew, is born into 
the uh, Jewish religion, consciousness of that day. And so what he comes to do is to establish everything that he had set out within his people, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, and but then to expand on it. And then, of course, Christianity comes forth from Judaism. So there's that connection. But let's take the other religions, the other founders. Okay? They speak of love and of peace, but there's one big difference between them and Jesus. Jesus talks about taking us out of this reality and recreating a new one. Again, a supernatural claim. The others talk of staying in this reality and somehow evolving to a personal or even a universal peace. So far, the odds of that happening are slim. And look at history. Look at what's happening now. Humanity's record falls incredibly short. Can we really be trusted, we as human beings, to leave war behind, end world hunger, eradicate poverty, conflict, inequity, racism, and hate? Will technology do it? Because many who are involved in big tech are saying that that's their purpose. And so far, that's been a bust. The intent of making the world a better place is a good thing, don't get me wrong, but the ends of big tech, like Google, Facebook, and others, is to use us to socially engineer a planet towards a globalism that seeks to unite based not on diversity, although that's what they say, but on a uniformity where we think the same, speak the same, or else you are jettisoned, taking out because of our dissidents, because we don't follow what they are saying we should follow. It's funny how, if you look at dystopian stories, and they've become really commonplace these days, especially within um, the film industry. These stories, these these um, dystopian stories, always set in uh, uh, they're always set in the future, and they show us some type of perfected or highly evolved society, but always at the expense of human freedom and liberty. And that's the issue. A few at the top claiming a form of moral superiority over the rest, but necessary in order to maintain a society that is 100% secure, free of crime, and ordered to operate in tune. A stability that I think all of us are seeking. And on the surface, hey, sounds great. Of course, all of these stories that we watch in film or read, they end in peril. With a few who are referred to as rebels who fight for their freedom. Always freedom. And as the audience, we always cheer for who? Those at the top? Those who gave us the stability? Or do we cheer on for the rebels? The freedom fighters? 
And why is it that we end up cheering on for the rebels and the freedom fighters? Because we are inherently predisposed to be free and live free. But now let's think of the prologues to these dystopian stories before they start, before the, the, um, the beginning of the films that we watch or the stories we read. What about the prologues? Have you ever asked yourself, okay, how and why did humanity come to accept this new and improved way of life that purports to save the world? It's because the human race had reached such a tipping point where they couldn't take the madness anymore that they were willing to give up that same freedom for the guarantee of security and stability. There's just one problem, though. Where security may have achieved and maybe even eliminated crime, perhaps even a harmony that unites for a time. The issue of human frailty and of a flawed humanity and our mortality is never solved. These stories don't solve that problem. They may be within a process of trying to solve it. Death is something that we just have to live with in these stories. It's an improved way of life. But death, mortality, nope, those things aren't solved. So it's a desperation in the midst of, let's say, catastrophe or crisis, a disaster that uh, creates a mass panic and a mass hysteria that then leads the masses to turn to whatever and whoever may be claiming that they have a way out. They have the answer. And it's in that reality, that mass hysteria, uh, that, that, that panic, that we trade in some precious freedom to breed a security controlled, not by the many, but by a few who claim a moral superiority over the rest. We can take care of it. Don't worry. And that's the key word here. Control. Control for security's sake and for peace's sake. A control that gives the facade of order and unity, but only ends in oppression. Is that what you want? I can tell you it's not what I want. And the more and more I think about this Jesus, the better and better he and his promises begin to sound. issue with the person of Jesus comes with the religion of Jesus. The stigma of religion for many is the whole systematic set of conditions, the pomp and circumstance which for some is incredibly pretentious. It can become like some club that puts people through this initiation process to prove one's worth. 
but our worth comes from our existence. And when one looks at the person of Jesus without the lenses of religion, we find someone who qualifies the worth of people whom society had deemed worthless. Take Martin Luther King, and we've already discussed him. MLK, we we admire him and honor his legacy because he decided to stand up for the oppressed and for those in society had deemed less than. Where Where did that motivation come from? Well, one need not look further than Jesus. MLK was a follower of this man, and he was a minister. He, he was an actual representative of this man called Jesus. It wasn't about his religion or even about politics, but about a set of principles that are timeless and that Jesus himself embodied and lived by. Did Martin Luther King's influence bring about a true and lasting change? Absolutely he did to the point that there's even a statue of him. And besides that, the history, the books, the documentaries. Now, does hate and prejudice still exist? Of course. But the world in which MLK lived no longer exists. Hate is a human problem. Hate knows no color, creed, or culture. Even the religious can, unfortunately, hate as much as any other. Like MLK, Jesus stands up on behalf of the afflicted, of the suffering, and the oppressed. His life is the antithesis to the Roman and even the Jewish way of life. And both had forgotten mercy. Now, I'm going to do something here that hopefully can help you to see what the truth really is about this man, Jesus. And don't let it put you off. Because as soon as someone begins to quote scripture, uh-oh, now it's now it becomes a sermon. This isn't a sermon. This is a discussion. And we should be able to look at the Bible and quote from it without feeling, oh my gosh, I'm in a a church situation. No, not at all. This is where we need to open our minds because we're talking about someone whose information, history, personhood is in Scripture. So we have to read from it. And I encourage you to read from it too. Now, connecting both the New Testament and the Old Testament, we've already established, and it is well-known fact, that the Old Testament gives information, prophecy, of a Savior that is to come, a Messiah. And that's where Christianity begins to put together that Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, is a fulfillment of what the Old Testament says. Now, this is where Judaism and Christianity become divided. 
Regardless, let's look at what the Old Testament says about Jesus. And here's the interesting thing. Jesus uses this very same verse in the story of the Gospels to somehow identify himself and prove that what the Old Testament says is true and that he is the one that's going to fulfill what is said. So, going back to what we were talking about, just like MLK, Jesus stands up for those who are afflicted, who are suffering, who are oppressed. And this is what Jesus says. He quotes from Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. And this is what that particular verse in the Bible says. Quote, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives. Oh, I love that. That's awesome. To proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. Isn't that what we're all searching for? This sounds like a world that I want to be a part of. Do we want to see the captives freed? the poor restored, the broken healed, and yes, even those who have done such injustice at the expense of the weak, the poor, and the unloved be stopped. And you see, most people would look at uh, this particular part of the verse where it says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. As soon as we start putting vengeance and God together, that becomes uncomfortable. But you see, the point that he's trying to make is, that those who were constantly crying out about, who are doing injustice, that they get what they deserve. Isn't that what culture wants? Well, God is saying, I'm going to answer the injustice. So what's, so what's the problem? There is no problem. There shouldn't be. And everything else that the verse says is what MLK did. How he lived. And we're willing to look at someone like that and go, yep, he's the ideal. But you see, he had someone he was idealizing, Jesus. So you have to go to the source. Where did he get his beliefs from? From Jesus. So if we're going to look at MLK and we're going to admire him, then shouldn't we give some credence to what he believed in? That uh, what what actually motivated him to live and do in his own life? This Jesus proclaims all of this and more. So I look at at this and 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 I wonder if this is what we all want, then what keeps us from believing the rest? And that's a relevant question. Remember, it was Gandhi who said, "I like your Christ." This is a man who's a Hindu. I like your Christ. His issue wasn't with 
with with Christ himself. His issue was with Christians. And that's, listen, that's understandable. When it comes to religion, when it comes to the followers, they tend to do Jesus of great disservice. But why should I not want to listen and believe Jesus because of a few Christians who don't get it right? That's the problem. We look at it through religion. Stop with the religion. Religion, I think, has its place. And it can be good. But it can also do evil in the name of the one that they, that they believe in. But if you act against the very things, the very principles that the founder stood by, then how can you call yourself a Christian? If they decide to act against the principles that Jesus stood on, that he preached, what keeps me from continuing to search and listen to the message of Jesus himself? This is not about which religion is true. This is about what is true, the fundamental, uh, 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 a truth that is self-evident. Now, based on what I see and what we've covered, I can't ignore the fact that the message and life of Jesus is really the most impactful and the most revolutionary the world has seen and heard. Think of it. It's not about finding some higher plane of existence here on this earth and still having to confront and deal with our own mortality and the loss of others. What he says is, and this is, this is the part that really gets me, because it, it, it's a powerful thing. How he lives, what he does for others, powerful thing. It's what we want. It's what we admire in people like MLK and others. Okay? He then stakes his life on what he was preaching and, and how he lived, saying that he's he came to rescue us from sin. And again, there is a word that we're uncomfortable with, sin. Because the minute we use that word, we then feel like we're accountable to some religion, some priest, some pastor, and then to a God that we have some trouble with. And that's to be understood. But we're angry, aren't we? We're upset at injustice. What is injustice? It's that which goes against the principles of life. So another word for that is sin. It's not a religious word. Sin is simply that which does not go with the law. It, it is the breaking of laws, of the law of life. And if we're crying out against injustice, then what we're doing is we're crying out against sin. You can't avoid it. You're saying there's something wrong being done here, and it needs to be corrected. Well, that's what Jesus stands for. But he does even more. He claims to have come not just to witness to what is true, not only to do good to others and to show us an example of how we should live in our own lives, but then says, I'm going to save you from sin and... I'm going to take you out 
of this reality into a new one that I'm going to recreate. He says, I'm coming again. And there will be no more death and no more crying and no more pain, no more loss. Now, can science offer that? Can religion offer that? Can government offer that? The answer is a resounding no. But Jesus does. So what's there to resist? What's there not to like? If you don't like Christians, got it. If you don't like the pomp and circumstance, got it. But Jesus even stood against that. His worst enemies were those who were the head of the religious system of his day. Now, from a point of view of history, the fact is that Jesus existed. Look it up. History corroborates everything the New Testament says about Jesus living and dying and even resurrecting, and that's the one that people have a hard time with. Okay, some might say, all right, there's enough history to show that Jesus existed and died. What, where, what evidence is there of resurrection? Well, that's the next thing we're going to tackle. We have to look at that if we're going to look at everything. And I know and understand that the supernatural event of the resurrection defies everything we know and understand about our world, about physics, and even science, and our limited existence. Because we're so used to the pattern, life, death, life, death. And the question of, is there life after death? This Jesus says, the truth is in knowing and understanding him. It's not in the gurus or leaders of these other religions or belief systems. And that's what intrigues me and draws me so much to the story and this person. Because he makes these claims that are unlike any other. It's in knowing this truth that is so self-evident that he says is in knowing and understanding him. It's in knowing that we are valuable because we are created, uniquely made, fashioned and worth so much that he staked his own life on it. That's someone to pay attention to. And this is a life that he claims can be ours as well. Now I'm telling you, after looking at it, searching and reading, and, and, and when you put that against the reality we live in today, I want what he's offering. I want what he says he can give. And the world is crying out for what he's offering. So we continue the search. This is, for me, a pivot point for us. It's a big pivot point because as we look at the life and the principles by which this man lived by, we now have to look at the claim that he is who he said he was. Because, again, the big thing is he's coming again. You see, every year, and we're about to come to the season, we are in the season of Christmas, And most of the world celebrates this, Christian or not. 
The fact of the matter is, is that Christmas has a basis in Christianity. The very word Christmas, the root of that word is Christ. So you can't celebrate the holiday separating it from the foundation, from the origin of the holiday. You, you can think that you're doing it intellectually, but you can't. And isn't it amazing that, again, the influence of this man, 2,000 years plus later, still strong, still around. So again, we can accept all the good he did. We can even accept that he existed. But did he resurrect? Because if he didn't, then there's nothing to celebrate. Nothing at all. And the fact is, is that he resurrects and then he says, this isn't over. The story isn't over. I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back again and take you out of this reality that today we're crying out. We're crying out to get out of. And no one, no matter how good their intentions, has had the answer yet. But this man seems to have the answer. And it's pretty consistent. So continue to take the look, the plunge, to be able to see the truth clearly, because it's right there. And now we're being, we're being able, now we're uncovering something that is worth really not just looking at, but actually considering to make a part of our lives. Because if it if this is true, then by gosh, we need, we must look further. <laughs> <laughs> 